Welcome to Tone Vendors, a sound designer's podcast. Here are your hosts, Timothy and Renee. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today, as always, is Timothy Muirhead. Hey, Tim. Hey, Renee. How you doing? I'm doing all right. And today we have Dave Whitehead. Dave's based out of Wellington in New Zealand. Dave's done sound design for District 9, Lord of the Rings Trilogy, Elysium, Snowpiercer, and Jack the Giant Slayer, among a whole bunch of others on his IMDb list. You can find us on Twitter. I am at Renee underscore Coronado. Tim is at Azimuth Audio, and you can find the podcast at The Tone Benders. Hey, Dave. How you doing, man? Um, very good. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on. Yeah, well, ha- happy to be helping out and chatting to your um, your listeners. There's a good friend of mine, um, Justin Doyle. He's going to be, uh, you know, he's an up and coming sound designer, and he's the guy that sort of said, you know, these tone benders guys are great. You know, you've got to you've got to take time and sort of do an interview with them. So, uh, you know, you've got listenership out there in New Zealand, which is a good thing. That's great. Excellent. Tell Justin thanks. Yeah, Pastor, yep. thanks along. Dave, we normally like to start these interviews with uh, asking people how they got into the business because we find everybody has a different story. So do you want to tell us yours? Yeah, sure. When I was at high school, I started playing guitar and all that sort of stuff. So I was, you know, into music, playing piano, yada, yada. And uh, I convinced myself I wanted this four-track recorder, like just a cassette four-track and Bought the four track, got obsessed with technology, with buttons, with opening new gear and the smell of it as you open the box and that sort of thing. And, you know, started collecting effects, guitar pedals, you know, the flanger, you know, the digital delay and playing with those things and really, really digging the sound of those things. Started, you know, just writing a lot of music and recording a lot of local bands, uh, you know, with my four track cassette recorder. So <laughs> pretty lo-fi stuff, but it was sort of the basis of getting into sound and sort of, you know, coming to terms with effects and, and uh, you know, losing half my hearing with all the martial amps that we had. Yep. But, um, <laughs> but you know, and then I, I was asked to take an interview at, a, at the University of Waikato in, in New Zealand, and they had a, a tiny little MIDI room, they were calling it, and we didn't know what MIDI was at that point, and uh, it was a Mac Plus with a Roland U20 and um, a whole lot of sort of archaic sort of uh, amplifiers and things that looked like they were homemade and, you know, a few cables and, and a bigger four-track than mine. And so that was kind of the, the sort of meat and potatoes of how I got into studios. And then they asked me to start writing music for their television production unit that they had at the, uni- at the university, um, writing little ditties uh, with the U20 and a Proteus one using my Mac Plus uh, with uh, Performer. And so, and uh, Master Tracks Pro. So it's kind of like real early root stuff in terms of when MIDI was kicking off and before Pro Tools was, before that came about. You know, we had um, Sound Designer, the just the edit program that, that, that sort oh, of came yeah. out. That was kind of flash. <laughs> and then uh, started editing sort of spoken word uh, sort of uh, lectures and that sort of stuff at the university. And it sort of moved on. But anyway, I started doing short films. And... There were, you know, a lot of students doing short films at a, you know, what we call a polytech. I don't know what you guys call it, but, it, you know, it was their assignment that they had to hand in. So it's a five-minute film, and I, I kind of dug it. It was actually, it was a lot of fun, you know, having to cut effects, not just doing the music. But I ended up doing both. So I'd compose and design for both of them. And then so, I, you know, got myself my business card saying, Dave Whitehead, sound designer, composer. And I kind of dug the term. So I, I think I did about you know, maybe 12, 14, 20, who knows, little short films for free or for beer or for, you know, <laughs> whatever. And uh, out of that, 
was asked to do a, a feature film uh, off the basis of one of those short films. So it's kind of funny. I've never really had an apprenticeship. I've never really gone to a done a course or anything like that to do with sound design. I kind of f- uh, fell into it, really. What was that first uh, feature that you had? What was your first feature break? Oh, it was called The Ugly, and uh, it was a story about a murderer, and there was a whole lot of psychological stuff and ghosts, and, you know, Weta was involved in helping with some of the blood and the gore, and I was, you know, this was amazing. I was, you know, it was it was a real treat, and it was, uh, at the time, it was the most exciting thing that had ever happened to me, and it was, you know, enough to move city and and quit my job at the university and, and then sort <laughs> of uh, fall into the world of the freelance sound designer from that point on and haven't really gone back since. But um, there's not the the amount of work, you know, in the US. I mean, I went there recently for the first time. And it was, you know, I've worked on a lot of shows with a lot of great people over there and finally got to meet some. But there's a real flow of work over there and it's always kind of been like that. And in New Zealand, it's few and far between, you know, feature films. And so it was kind of hard and there were many years where there was no money. I think one of my best years, I, I must have earned, you know, $10,000. <laughs> wow. I don't know how we paid rent, but you know, sort of that—that's—that's that's what we're talking. We're talking uh, a real struggle on some of the early sort of films I was working on, and I, I was certainly um, fortunate to meet a few great people along the way who've helped me out. The lecturer at the University of Waikato, Ian Worley, just awesome. You know, he put me in that room with the Mac Plus and all those things, and I got to experiment. And it was he'd buy me a Insonic DP4, and he'd buy a, just a new sample, Emacs two or three, whatever it was. All these um, at the time cutting edge sort of toys, and he made me sort of learn the software. And it was my job to just figure it out to show the students, and that was a great treat. But you know. Um, there's been a few sort of people along the way here that have helped me too. Um, I like Mike Hopkins, who recently passed away. He was a dialogue editor who was uh, one of the supervisors on Lord of the Rings. And my second feature film, I got to work with him. And, you know, he gave me one lesson. He said, um, okay, you've got low frequencies, you've got low mids, you got high mids and you got highs. You just get a good balance of those four and you're sweet. Now go. <laughs> you know? So it's kind of like... It was it was the perfect lesson. It was probably one of the only ones I really got from anyone, and uh, that was kind of the basis of my career. So yeah, <laughs> it's funny because that's exactly right, and it's way easier said than done. Yeah, totally, totally, absolutely. Yeah, understanding those is a lifetime thing. You, it's constantly shifting with the fidelity of microphones and speakers, and keeping up with it, and trying to excite the young ears that are coming up so that they don't fire you is the key. <laughs> <laughs> Having just visited LA, one of the main things that I was curious about from your perspective was going to be the difference between the workflow in New Zealand versus the workflow in LA. We've had several guests on from LA, and LA is a very structured, regimented environment. It's it's one of those um, one of those places where everyone has a very specific job to do, and and the people that do those jobs, they sit and they put their heads into those jobs, and they um, yeah. they become experts at those at those tiny slices of just the audio part yeah. of, of the film. Totally, and and I did notice that, and I've and I've known of that for quite a while. But um, they get really good at it, though, you know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we, we we've had to spread ourselves around, and you've got to be diverse here, or else you sink. You've got to be able to do every job. So, like, I will, and I have, you know, edited dialogue for uh, entire films, and gone through, lined up the ADR, done all that sort of stuff, edited the foley, recorded the foley, performed the foley, written the score. So, you know, you kind of 
get to the point where you're just doing everything for the job because there's no one else to help you. I guess one thing that we don't have here is, and sometimes for better or for worse, is a union. And, um, you know, sometimes I think wage parity and all that sort of thing, it would be great to have it. And so we're, we're constantly negotiating our, our, our wages and our, you know, terms down here, which, you know, sometimes it's harder for the younger ones coming up to sort of get a good deal. But anyway, in terms of workflow, we, we're very similar, I guess. We, we're very lucky to have Peter Jackson here. And the thing is that he has set up an infrastructure for us to better our skills, you know, better our, what we do. And he has brought down people from the United States for his films since, you know, Frighteners, I guess. And Randy Tom and um, yep. Phil Benson and uh, a few other people came down during that time and uh, and re-recording mixes as well, you know, through other films. And they have shared their knowledge with us uh, in terms of, you know, how to lay up our tracks, how to create a track, you know. I mean, before I was introduced to that world of, you know, how to lay out your material ready for a mix, it was sort of bung it in the hole, you know, like you just get the tracks and you're just sort of throwing things in and just, you know, it's all sort of there and, you, you know, you give it to a re-recording mixer and they're like, oh, my God, what is this Frankenstein? You know, <laughs> I had a few horror experiences and then they let me look at some of the charts for Frighteners and that was actually the first time I knew what to do. In the old days, before you had Pro Tools displays on screen, you had to get the charts and write them out by hand, you know, every minute and a half of the film. And I sat there for about half a day just looking at these charts. Oh boy, they've got car tires by themselves. Oh my God, you know, here's the car engine split out by itself as well, you know, and then blah, 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 and sort of... It was actually, yeah, it was a really good insight for me. I didn't even listen to the tracks, but seeing them split out on these charts was one of the best lessons I ever got. But, you know, uh, then Lord of the Rings came along and I was fortunate enough to be asked to work on that. And people like David Farmer, he's a, he's a good friend, um, great sound designer. Hearing what he was creating sonically, just even hearing it was a, a lesson in itself. You know, like it was actually, you know, hearing those throbs coming out of his room. At the time, I was a sound effects editor and I was gifted some pretty cool things to do. Can you talk to us just a little bit about that specific project, about the very first Lord of the Rings and about what that experience was like? Well, it was kind of interesting. Like I was given the job on Lord of the Rings, the first one, and I actually quit. <laughs> uh, <laughs> The first Lord of the Rings, because I was on this television show that was paying me much more money. And uh, <laughs> and so uh, it wasn't that. It was a few other things as well. But um, I ended up not working on the show. And then towards the end, they said I had a gap in my, in my, in my, my busy television schedule. And they said, oh, would you like to come and do the first 10 minutes of the film? And I said, yeah, I'd love to. So got to do the prologue which was, it was kind of cool to sort of not do the film and then be able to open up the first thing that everyone was going to see was going to be the stuff that I did. And so it ended up being a, a great treat. And that was a very kind of open sound designy thing. And it was that, it was the, um, you know, the, the ring of Sauron being cut off. And the oh big, yeah. Ooh, the explosion is, you know. Is... Yes. And on the slopes of Mount Doom, they fought for the freedom of Middle Earth. <laughs>
was near. That Isildur, son of the king, took up his father's sword. enemy of the free peoples of Middle-earth was defeated. I remember standing in, I was in Australia actually when the, the premiere was on and I almost stood up and tweaked my nipples. It was, it was a, a great, <laughs> it was a great moment, you know. It was a real honour actually to do that stuff. And then while the crew was finishing off the rest of the film, I got to do a full version of movie two of The Two Towers, you know, cut a full version of Helm's Deep and the horses and a, like a tent mix. And so um, then uh, became entrenched <laughs> with the other troopers in that world of Middle Earth, which has been great for all of us. I mean, it's it's interesting being in the last one now, and I can't really talk about it, but it's, you know, we're all starting to think, oh, well, it's almost over, you know? <laughs> right. It's uh, six years of, of our life sort of spent playing in this world, and it's it's been cool. It's been an absolute gift in terms of, you know, being on a job that long with a crew that size, it's pretty unheard of nowadays, and we're we're very fortunate. I mean, I think there might be, you know, close to 20 people on some of these jobs, and it's a lot of people. So when you were cutting sounds, were they getting out in front of you and, and doing a lot of the custom sound effects recording, or were you cutting in just library sounds first and then replacing them afterwards? Like, how was that working? Uh, well, I guess my modus operandi, if you like, or, you know, uh, the, the way I like to approach a film is to try and record all my own effects first you know like try and start with original material and that's not always true you know there are times I've, I've delved into libraries but it'll always try that'll be my last resort I'll try and go into a commercial library last if I can I'm kind of loosening up a bit on that in my old age nowadays because there are so many damn good libraries out there yep I mean you can't deny it and the technologies and the, the microphones and the, the just the quality of the recordings is incredible nowadays. And you can't, so you can't deny a lot of those things now. But, you know, it used to be Hollywood Edge and, you know, bless them. You know, they, <laughs> <laughs> they've been in so many shows, but you, you know that stuff. And, and uh, I've sort of said to a few people lately, you know, uh, a film doesn't use stock footage. So why would we use stock sounds? And, you know, it's kind of, that's kind of been our way of working. So we'll start with our own recordings if we can augment them, you know, create all the, you know, one thing I was always saying for a while was, you know, I'd like to do everything that's real and from that all the surreal stuff comes out of it. You know, you'll find a beautiful element within a recording that you can sort of treat. And, and I think if you're working on, say, um, you know, magic or, you know, let's say you've got some wizard or whatever, you know, you record all the real sounds around them and then using the source material that you've recorded treat that so it becomes the ethereal stuff. You know, it comes from the organic source from what you see on screen, so it's kind of attached, even though it's been treated in such a way that it doesn't resemble what the original sound was, it's still derived from that source. And I think that's kind of um, the way I've always worked my tracks. So you allocate a certain amount of time on the front end just to do custom recording, or are you constantly recording as you're cutting? Constantly recording. And, I mean, we, we do look at things and we say, we really don't have this in our library. We Hell, we, we don't have any of this or that. And we will try and record that heavily. So we'll take, you know, as many recorders. You know, for, for example, 
I mean, what can we talk about? Staying on Lord of the Rings, we had to record a lot of animals. And so we went to every zoo that we possibly could. We recorded everyone's pets that we could. My mum had a farm, so I went there, recorded the cows, you know, they had frogs down in the in the swamp, and I went and recorded the frogs. And you just record every single thing in your world that is available to you. And to create orcs and to create those sorts of creatures, you've got to have palette. You know, you've got to have those animals to start off with. You end up using your voice a lot as well, but <laughs> you've got to start with that raw source material. And so the whole crew, everyone, just anything that you can come across, animal-wise or anything, just gather it. Uh, we'll get specific records, as I say, with zoos or Dave Farmer uh, recorded some beautiful stuff for the, for the Lord of the Rings, you know, elephant seals for the the first orcs in the first movie. There's such a signature sound and, you know, it's hard to use it anywhere else because they're so good there. You know, the echoing through the caves of Moria and clambering out. And then using, was it California sea lions for the Uruks and in, in the two towers, you know, as a sort of a base. So they're like one of the real signature sounds. So it was sort of sea mammals were kind of building blocks for orcs. We had the New Zealand fur seals here, which have a very unique sort of a sound and they're very guttural. And yeah, that sort of thing, you know. So the thing is, you want to use that as sort of the building blocks to try and build the mouth and build the or the shape of it before you start getting the roars coming out. You know, roars are always the difficult thing, but you can always start by you know building up the phlegm and the and the throat and the all that sort of gashy stuff before you start working on the vocal because you know that'll come. Uh, and so things like the New Zealand fur seals were great for that. Um, Staffordshire Bull Terriers, they're always good. They're snarky and, you know, sloppy mouth and that sort of stuff as well. So, you know, I, I, I tend to sort of go for that sort of thing, get a shape so I've got the, you know, that sort of thing first and then get the roars to come out of it. The, the roars are something that will develop through the show. I mean, we've done major records. Uh, for King Kong, we went to Borneo. Uh, Ethan van der Rijn and I um, were fortunate enough to be flown over there for a number of days and record in um, several locations in the jungle. And, and it was just, you know, one of those lifetime experiences, really. For sure. Where you sort of go and you're standing in a jungle and feeling very small and very vulnerable with giant ants gnawing at your toes. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was funny, though. Like, we, you're thinking, okay, we're going to go to Borneo. Uh, leeches are going to rain from the sky and ants are going to get you and, and bat guano is going to fall in your eye and you're going to get some disease. And, you know, you're dressed top to toe with sort of bush clothes and we had mosquito nets and the locals are walking around in shorts and jandals, you know, <laughs> <laughs> flip-flops <laughs> with a singlet sort of laughing at us the whole time. And that was pretty funny, but it was it was really great to be in... Um, Near Caves was a particular highlight and, um, you know, standing in this huge, huge cave in the middle of the jungle uh, with just thousands of bats streaming out of it was was pretty cool. So, What kind of gear did you take? Well, we were discussing that last week, actually, when I caught up with him, and uh, <laughs> we took the worst gear possible. Um, <laughs> we had an HHB 8-track recorder, which was pretty cool. It was a good recorder. Uh, when we didn't leave it on in the case and it overheated and we had to let it cool down in the middle of nowhere, 
because it, it, it almost fried the circuits. We took four one what was it four one six T microphones, which had a noise floor with them, but we just didn't have time to sort of get some good mics or hire some good mics. I don't know why we didn't. We were talking about it the other day, saying it was crazy that we didn't just go and hire some great ships microphones or you know. Well, your chefs would have gone nutty too because chefs are real susceptible to humidity. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, you learn these things. <laughs> Never again when I go to the jungle will I take a 416T. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but they yeah, still sound great. Bring some Sennheisers. Was, yeah, there we go. <laughs> but it was, it was great. It was, uh, you know, and just standing in front of a grizzly bear for The Hobbit, that was a, a highlight. It was beautiful. Wow. And it's just standing there. And it's a happy bear jumping around like a little baby going, rawr, rawr, rawr. <laughs> and it's just roaring at you. And it was. Uh, you know, that's a real treat. It's not every day you get to do that. And um, one of the perks of the job for sure. But, um, you know, it's something I don't have. We don't have a beer in the Southern Hemisphere. The only beer we have, we, we put down a, 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 in a glass and drink. Um, but. Uh, <laughs> We don't have walrus, you know, it'd be nice to go and record them at some stage in, in Alaska. Oh, but, I know. Walruses make the craziest noises. Oh, they do, you know, but there's nothing down here. And so, you know, that's one of those records that I'm, I'm dying to do sometime in, in the not too distant future. Dave Farmer's got some, so that's fine. He, he's got <laughs> us covered for The Hobbit. <laughs> yeah. So for The Hobbit, how much of the Lord of the Rings sound library did you move forward? Or did you just kind of decide that this is a similar world, but different world? Or did you try and use some of the same elements? Well, you kind of have to in a way. I mean, there's a sonic footprint there that you can't ignore. Sure. And so the thing is that there are sounds that, you know, Dave Farmer made the sound of Gandalf's magic. And for me, it's Gandalf's magic. It, do, it can't change. I mean, that is what it is, and it's a great sound, you know. so It's iconic. Yeah, it is. It's iconic, and it sticks. And so the thing is that at that time, we were working with DAT machines. We are recording 44.1 kilohertz, 16-bit. And so we've moved on from there. We've all got sound devices, recorders, and so – so, you know, we, we listen to the old sounds of Lord of the Rings and um, we, we take from that and we're just trying to increase the fidelity of it and sort of, you know, we're, we're working in Atmos now. We have better speakers, we have better microphones and, you know, some things you just can't deny are great sounds though. You know, Tim Nielsen made some beautiful things for Lord of the Rings. Some of his ambience and, you know, some of his battle rumbles and, you know, some of the sounds that he made for the Lord of the Rings were just fantastic and they do end up coming back, you know. A good sound is a good sound. It's, <laughs> you can't deny that. But uh, as I said before, we just are constantly recording. I think we have several terabytes so far for these three films and I've never seen a library like this before in my life. I mean, this is – it's very, very, very significant across every kind of sound you could possibly imagine. You know, we, we recorded so many cogs, for example. Like, you know, we needed some cogs for a couple of scenes and when the gates open for Lake Town in movie two. And so I set up, there's a place in the Southern Hemisphere, um, Brayshaw Park, and it's this old farm implement sort of a place. And so four of us went down there with, you know, four different recorders and walked around this place. And we have the ultimate cog and metal contraption library. I and mean, we're talking... Too many files. You know, you're searching for COG <laughs> and we get a, a couple of thousand files come up. It's it's ridiculous. So that's the sort of thing we do. We, we record to the extreme. So do you work actually, are you working on your own and then you guys interface or are you working in a building with everybody else on the crew? Like are you, is Weta your home base or? Uh, the, the Hobbit crew is based at Park Road Post. Park Road Post, okay. 
Yeah, and so we have, you know, there's a room called the Fishbowl and it's got like, you know, 10 edit rooms off it with, a, you know, lounges and things uh, in the middle and um, they're good-sized rooms. I'm in one now. It's sort of, um, it's a three-story building. There's probably about 30, 40 rooms currently and they've just expanded the entire back of the building to uh, give us an extra 10, 15, 20 rooms. So it's growing and... We have three re-recording stages downstairs, two big theatres, both of them set up with Atmos, and um, a smaller sort of uh, room where, you know, a lot of the dialogue is pre and that sort of stuff as well, but they're great rooms. We have a Foley room here and a great ADR room as well, but um, it's a full film processing place, so they have uh, post-production, they're going to be doing edit suites down the hallway, and they've got grading, the whole thing, so it is... Um, it's a great place to work. It's a, a real, it's a beautiful building, sort of based on the Frank Lloyd Wright architecture and stained glass windows and stuff and great, great coffee. <laughs> there you go. This is a big thing in New Zealand culture. Coffee must be great in order to cut good sound. And uh, it's, uh, we, we have a drink called the Flat White, which uh, is why some of our films sound so good is because of this coffee. <laughs> <laughs> Proprietary coffee, not soft. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. You've mentioned Atmos a couple times. How is uh, cutting an Atmos in the more recent Hobbit films changed the way you approach? Well, for us, we haven't been mixing Atmos native at the start. And so for the last two films, the objects were sort of processed at the end of the of the process. And so they were working on a 7-1. So it was a 7-1, and then they would take that and do the objects later on. Personally, I really want to work Atmos native. <laughs> I really want to have 9.1 in my room. <laughs> and be able to sort of even just try and design those objects in your room because, you know, I guess it's hard because it's such a big space to take it in with all the, you know, all the extra speakers and that. But I think we need to start embracing the technology in the design room, in the edit room. And moving forward in the next, you know, year or, or so, I, I hope that Dolby sort of start to think of the smaller rooms and how we can have systems to be able to work successfully in our room. Well, even in 7.1, how much panning do you do in the edit room? Well, we, we do a lot. And so we will actually, we run full temp mixes with panning. And, you know, they, Brent Burge, who's our supervisor for The Hobbit, he has a an Uber session so he can sort of see how everyone's going. And often this is actually a rolling temp mix, which gives us an idea as to how we're doing with the film. And so we do pan and we do, you know, do our own subs in our room. A lot of that sometimes doesn't go to the stage. So we will take our raw tracks to the stage. I mean, obviously that's a lot of work lost sometimes, but sometimes it's good to get, you know, I mean, if you've got Chris Boys uh, behind the, uh, the the console, it's not a bad thing. So, you know, sometimes <laughs> right. I like to let him do his magic. Or Gary Summers, who helps out sometimes. I mean, uh, Mike Hedges, um, Mike Semanic, they, they they bring their own magic to the to the mix and it's nice to let them get their fingers on, on your material really in their ears but obviously some things like if you've got a whole lot of arrows flying over your head and there's real fast panning or you've got violence going across the screen or you know there are really fast things happening such as in movie two we had the barrel ride down the river you know with the yep. orcs and and so sometimes we will take pre-panned material down there and um you know they'll either say yep that's great or no give me the raw tracks and so you know we leave the options but then you look at something like Elysium, you know, where, uh, you know, you work on the material and then Craig Berkey is really mixing it. He, he, he mixed that stuff in the box in a smaller sort of a room. 
and took that stuff to the stage, you know, out of his Pro Tools. And it's, it really is the way of the future, I believe. You know, we will be doing a lot more in the box. It saves money for the production. The pans relate pretty damn well to the big rooms and and um, we're getting confident with how that works in our room and about how it relates to the bigger theatres. So. so speaking of really great panning, I want to switch gears to District 9 for a moment because that's one of my top five sound films of all time. I love that film. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of what's going on there is like kick-ass panning of the dialogue. But since you're the sound designer on that, the other thing that I absolutely loved, and maybe you can help me out with this, was the alien vocals. Yeah. Number one, it was a treat to get that film. And and the thing is, Neil Blomkamp is, he's a great director to work with. um, And to have him and Peter working together on that was pretty cool. But Neil, he, he knows what he wants. He is so clear and so concise. You know, you get a brief from him, he comes into the room and, and he has a real sense of what he wants. And he, he told me right from the start, he didn't want them to be mammalian. He didn't want them to have a mammal sort of a core. So it wasn't going to be deep. It wasn't going to be, a, you know, a growling sort of sort of a voice. It was going to be insectoid. And so that was the sort of word that we sort of started with. And so from there, um, you think of insects. And I started recording cicadas. I started recording bees. I started recording any insect I could come across. Wetters, they're a local sort of a creature that it's a little sort of a, a noise. And I just sort of took that brief and kind of ran with it. My first version of the language i was sort of thinking that whales and you know sea mammals they communicate with each other but it's not what we would recognize as a language really it was kind of noises but to them it is a language and i think my 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 first inception of it was really quite um it was ambiguous so you know it was sort of (laughs) but and actually um i played it to neil and i played it to peter they reviewed it and they both sort of said it it really didn't sound enough like a language it didn't have enough structure and so i I pretty much went away and wrote a language so sort of came up with actual words and came up with nouns because they had uh, on the screen they had these translations and they had uh, random mouth movements for the aliens that weren't actually keyed by anything. So when I received the animation, it was just the mouth going wow, 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 and just moving freely. And so there was no key, you know, there was nothing to draw on in terms of what the source of the movement was. And so I made up nouns and then I made up all the sort of connective tissue verbs, adverbs, you know, the whole thing. And then if they wouldn't fit, the words wouldn't fit within the movements of the mouth of the alien, I would make slang. <laughs> so shortened down versions of the words. Were you just doing this like by recording your own voice? Like how were you approaching that part of the process? Well, actually, first of all, it was me sitting at home writing the language. So I was actually writing physically on paper what the language was. And I believe it, because they said there wasn't a language, I needed to create a structure and that was an actual language. And so then I would go into the microphone and I'd record a version, which is sort of much like this, which is, um, so it was kind of that sort of thing. And then I would then strip out consonants and replace them with insect sounds that I'd recorded that sounded like a T or that sounded like an S. And then I would replace vowels with treated animal vocals that sounded very thin to create the A's and the O's. So it was a full micro-editing, vowel replacement sort of a job with the backbone of my voice for all of the aliens. Um, wow. And so 
Then partway through, they changed all the words on the screen. <laughs> <laughs> of course they did. And this was this was in the last two, three weeks before we were finaling. And, oh, man, I, I just I was devastated. And everyone was like, oh, don't worry. No one knows what they are anyway. You know, and I said, but I know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I was being all, you know, precious about the language because, you know, there were hundreds of words and, uh, you know, now there's thousands of words. So I went away and I rewrote the words and made up new words for the new bits and pieces that were put on the screen and redid all those in a couple of weeks. So probably 50% of it was done in about two weeks, two, three weeks. Wow. The biggest impression it made on me was as I was sitting there watching the film, I was looking at the visuals going, if someone had handed me those visuals, I would not have come near those decisions. They're so different mm. from where my brain was and they were and they were simultaneously so impressive to me, you know? Yeah. It struck a chord with quite a few people. And I guess the thing is, it just had to be right. And Neil did lead the way on a lot of those decisions, which was cool. And he'd say, no, it's not right. It's not right. It's not insect enough. Uh, and then he'd just go, that's cool. You know, and then you go, okay, just take that further. But I, I think an insect, I mean, you just think of insects and, you know, it's clicks and pops and, and whirs. And one of, one of the biggest parts of the sound was actually this frog caller. I don't know if I got it here, but... Um, it's just this sort of, um, it's like a little drum on a string and you sort of turn it and it's sort of, sort of a sound, you know, when you, when you turn it. But it kind of, that was, I'd put that up to my mouth and sort of talk some of the lines into the drum and that was, gave a sort of vowels like, wow, oh, cool. wow. It was like my little analog wah-wah pedal. I rubbed a pumpkin. <laughs> the pumpkin noises were really good. fruit and veggies just sort of they, uh, you, you rub them with a sort of a dry finger and they sort of sort of have a really good sound about them a real chitter um so that was really cool for some of the, the bits and pieces and yeah i just you know recorded the hell out of everything really i mean just trying to find <laughs> anything that's possibly sounded insectoid Something that I think, if you bear with me, is an amazing compliment to you is when I first saw District 9, I saw it with friends who are not in the industry at all. And I came out of the film thinking, oh my God, those vocals were amazing. And they just looked at me like they didn't even notice or think about them as being something that was created, <laughs> which is such a compliment because it, it just seemed like that's what those creatures made. Like they didn't even contemplate that someone spent weeks in a room making that happen. It just, that's how they sounded. So that that's a perfect compliment as far as I'm concerned. No, th th well, that's that's all we ask for, to be honest. I mean, yeah, exactly. You want you, you want that to happen. I mean, and the thing is, like even the tech, like the technology, it was sort of a lot of it was based on bees, and so I recorded, you know, this bumblebee, and it flew into my lounge one day, and I just sat there and recorded. I actually made quite a large insect uh, recording studio, if you like. <laughs> and so it sort of was padded off and it had a nice net over the top so they could breathe, and, you know. And I, I put them in there for a wee while and uh, I had a couple of mics either end and sort of got them recording, flying backwards and forwards, and then I let them go. And it was it was so, so cool. Like there's this pipe gun in one of the sort of gangster scenes and, yep. you know, and it's got this real... <laughs> And it's just a bee, you know, treated and processed. The spaceships for that film, I mean, I don't often get to use synthesizers very much, you know, just especially doing all these swords and sandals films. 
<laughs> but um, <laughs> it was kind of it was cool to be able to sort of jump on the old um, Roland JP eighty eighty, and I think I spent about an hour. Just made a really good chain and sort of uh, sat there for about an hour, just recording everything. And that was the spaceships, the dropship, the the mothership. those sorts of things uh, all of those sounds actually really happen in a very short space of time but it's just you get on a roll and it feels right in a way it's kind of good to do that because it gave a real signature sound to them because it was all from one recording mm-hmm. you know it was one sort of feel it was almost like it gave them almost a, a species of sound for the for the spaceships which gave them a sort of a similar engine a similar feel even though i went lots of places within that one record but uh then you process the hell out of them over for, for weeks afterwards and <laughs> that sort of stuff. But yeah, well, like I said, I mean, top five film for me all time. I loved loved that film. When you guys started working on that film, did you like know right away that it was going to be something special? Or because at least from my end in Canada, when District Nine came out, we didn't have any build up to it. It was just this kind of film that came out, and it wasn't a huge Hollywood blockbuster, so we weren't sure what to expect, which made it seeing it such a great experience because it just washed over you and was this amazing film but i was wondering from your perspective did you know the kind of impact that film was going to have when you started working on it we kind of did and nice it was actually watching neil's short films and it was also the excitement that we had you know thinking about you know peter taking on you know producing i don't know it was exciting to us because it was something different as well it was a sci-fi and who the hell doesn't love a sci-fi i mean you know we don't get enough of them to play with and he had this young energy that just came in and we're like, love it. You know, just play. Here's my ideas on how things are going to work. Here's my brief on the environment, the world, you know, how it works. Play, you know, play me something great sort of thing. And so, you know, it was cool. I think there was a real buzz amongst the crew here through that whole film. And we all regard it as one of the more fun experiences we've had on a film. And certainly one that everyone has noticed around the world anyway. So, you really can't complain about that. But um, we, we did it in quite a short period of time, which I like as well. Like a lot of times you get on these films and you almost go for too long. You get to think about them too much. Uh, I think there's something about the kung fu of sort of jumping in a film and, and just smashing it. <laughs> We've got to fix something. We've got to fix it now. Get creative. <laughs> totally. You know, and then Elysium, I mean, it had its fun aspects to it as well. I mean... We recorded a, a hell of a lot of new material for that as well. Um, so that was the same director, correct? It was Neil Blomkamp as well. And yeah. w- what I love about the job of coming up with a palette for a film, and I love palette building as much as I love cutting. So for Elysium, we sort of decided that Earth is this grungy, dirty place. You know, kind of the, all the technology is really old. It's like a Commodore 64 or a Atari or you know, an old microwave ding or, you know, just like really old crappy technology. And it was really based on that. And then Elysium was sort of based on, 
super uber high tech. I sort of thought early on that it would be sort of like vibration, you know, so like maybe the technology is based on some sort of magnetic vibration, but that also people in Elysium would want to hear all these beautiful sounds from Earth, you know, uh, whether it be whales or birds or beautiful insects, all the beautiful things that, you know, you would normally hear on Earth are just your computer noises and just the sounds that are around you. So it was a, another cool project where, you know, Neil sort of told us the ideas that uh, that he wanted for the film and we took it to the extreme, which was cool. I never got to be at the final mix for that, which is a real shame, but um, it was a great palette to make. Um, one of the, the most fun sounds was actually the sound of the Raven, which was one of the spaceships that Kruger comes down in, and it was sort of a military vehicle. And uh, it was a vibrator shoved into a dobro guitar. And um, <laughs> I, I bought it for the purpose of putting into the guitar. I'll also add sure that. Did. Yeah. Sure you did. Yeah. <laughs> and it was, it was actually funny putting that on my – just taking it to my accountant and saying why I'm claiming for a vibrator. But anyway, um, <laughs> so that was cool, just sort of swinging the, vi- uh, the, the vibrator, the, the, the dobro around my head, <laughs> getting real physical sound rather than – you know, it was, it was just a really cool way of getting – uh, source material for for the spaceships. And yeah, we shoved that vibrator in all sorts of metal. It was good. <laughs> I'm glad you ended that sentence the way you did. Yeah, yeah. I put I put the metal there. <laughs> <laughs> but you know i mean it's it's just the whole thing of just experimenting in unusual places with unusual things and yeah it's fun i actually just a couple nights ago had the distinct pleasure of watching Snowpiercer. that is a fun well i don't know if fun's the right word intense but yeah uh, a highly entertaining film maybe not necessarily fun yeah but uh that must have been fun for you to work on because as they move ahead in the train, each car has a whole new sound palette. It's completely different. It, it was cool. I mean, the, the good thing about it was I got to record some trains. he contacted me from Live Tonum and wanted me to get involved with the project and I spent about, I only spent five weeks actually, but I, I recorded a lot of sounds, but I spent five weeks of design with Tim Nielsen because we had nine weeks all up and I said, Tim, you know, you got any time, it'd be great to work together on something again and, and he came on board and we both jammed on it. It was actually a lot of fun. 
And it was really, really fun to see his tracks because we worked the same way and it was actually really funny. Sort of, I opened up a session, I could have sworn it was my own. It was <laughs> it was kind of weird. <laughs> we had a real ball. Just, I recorded trains. I, um, you know, made a whole lot of new computer noises for the, and recorded uh, some bits of choir for the engine at the end of the film. It was great playing with the violence in there. And it was more the surreal whooshes and violence. Tim Nielsen did some, I did some. And then I think Ralph and his team sort of did all the hard effects, you know, sort of adding the gush and the the physical sort of bloody side of that. But um, I am going to see it tomorrow night. Oh, excellent. I haven't seen the final film yet. And uh, I saw Terry Porter and um, Anna Belmer at uh, the Technicolors Theatre last week. And they were like, oh, it sounds great. You know, thanks so much. And I was like, oh, I'm dying to see it. So uh, I'm really looking forward to it. The uh, axe battle in the dark. Yep, yep. Came out amazing. No, that's cool. They made some really great mix choices and what to add and what to take out, and uh, it's it's really quite a tour to force that scene. It's pretty awesome. Well, it was quite minimal, and Tim Nielsen did a pass on that first. I added some bits and pieces, and uh, I have yet to see what happened to it. So. <laughs> And that's part of what I love about, you know, just doing design for a film and then handing it on as well, is you actually get the treat of feeling like you've watched it for the first time. Another guy I've worked with a lot is uh, Mark Mangini, and um, I love his work, Jack the Giant Slayer. He he contacted me about that. Actually, the first time I, I worked with him would have been, I guess, on Ring 2 or oh, Spiderwick Chronicles. Actually, yeah, the, the Spiderwick Chronicles was the first film I worked on with Mark. And um, he got me to do Goblins and bits and pieces, and we've had a real sort of a backwards and forwards, sort of using the clock to the advantage, you know, between New Zealand and the US, and it actually works really well. <laughs> the United States wakes up and there's a package uh, sitting in the Dropbox ready to go when they wake up, and it's been quite good. But I've worked on quite a few films with Mark and Jack the Giant Slayer. I got to do the Beanstalk material, and it was just a small bite of the film, but it was a it was a great sort of a, a thing to be able to take care of. Uh, we actually had this prop. It was actually like a wooden wheel and and with a bicycle pedal that turned it. And it sort of had little wooden cogs as you turned this bicycle wheel. Uh, one of our guys, sound effects editors here, he made it. He made this box. We call it the, the zizzomatic. It was to, to make rope, <laughs> rope zizzers and that sort of stuff. Anyway, so I got branches of trees and I spun this this wooden thing and sort of threshed this um, the tree branches over this um, device. And that was the basis of the sounds for the beanstalk. And then funnily enough, I used the same sound to help make the gold for Smaug coming out of, so like it, it just had that similar sort of threshing, sort of ripping and sort of it had a real sort of power about it. Finding weird ways of making sounds like that to get power into a sound is great fun. What kind of gear do you usually take? Like, what's your important parts of your recording kit that you need to have on you? I have um, a ship's MS rig that I use as sort of my main main sort of microphone. I have uh, DPAs, 4060s I love. 
I'm so abusive to those microphones. <laughs> I've made my own little rykots on them, and sort of they've got gaffer tape on them. They look they look awful, but I just throw them in things. So I'll throw it inside this. I'll attach it to that. You know, I've broken quite a few of them because the cables are quite thin. I wish they'd come up with a you know a more robust cable system for them. But they're a great mic. You know, high SPL. They're you know a really great Omni, and so I definitely use them all the time. A lot of times we've been using the 8050s, MKH or Sennheisers, mm -hmm. for a lot of records. You know, I mean, we like the extended frequency range on a lot of these mics. I mean, we're not recording anything much above 96. I mean, uh, you know, 192 takes up a lot of space. It's sort of, you know, uh, we don't record much in, at 192 at all, really, to be honest. Uh, I think it's mainly 96K, and that works fine for me. We've got a huge array of mics in this building, so... There's such a collection of editors here, that, you know, so we've got the every kind of mic you could possibly imagine up the hallway. So if I, if I want something, you know, to record, say, cannons and that sort of stuff, we'll just uh, get together all our rigs and set up 10, 20 microphones <laughs> and record the hell out of it. That's what we kind of did for, again, Elysium, just sort of we had a weapons record and, you know, just set up 14 mics. And it's the first time I've done a weapons record. It was done so quickly that every single mic was beautiful. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> it doesn't happen all the time, but it was sort of like uh, you love it when it does happen, especially, you know, with the high SPL stuff like that. Yeah, I've never had that happen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, so you like you like building pallets, and in the future, are you thinking about putting libraries out? Are you, are you thinking about letting that kind of be accessible to the rest of us? Well, I mean, I've collected so many sounds over the years, and I really do want to start um, putting out sound libraries. Uh, uh, I mean, it just seems like a logical progression, and I'd actually love to travel the world doing bits and pieces, gathering pallets from different countries as well. I have some definite good ideas about what I think is missing. Uh, from the in the world of libraries and actually just creating some assets that might be good for people as general building blocks for general design. I, I mean, there are so many good libraries out there, though. It's, it, I guess there's a lot of competition out there, but it's not about being competition. It's just about actually making the most of a resource that's already sitting there. And, you know, maybe I don't want to always do sound design for the rest of my life. There's other things to, you know, everyone's got more more than one talent and it'd be nice to actually try something else. I'd love to get into composing more music as well. And I guess I started as a composer and then became a, a sound designer. I'd like to sort of go the other way at some stage as well. So that's going to be interesting, maybe a complete failure, but I'll give it a crack. <laughs> it's definitely a tightly knit club. Yeah, oh, it is. I mean, most of the people that work in sound, I know, play some instrument or other. So there's not enough jamming down the hallways here, but uh, most people can pick up an instrument and play it. One thing that's really interesting, I think, is like, um, you know, even, even the likes of this podcast, there's, there are so many resources for sound designers nowadays to sort of get tips and tricks. There's so much information out there on how to, how to do sound design for things. I find it quite interesting. It's sort of like I think people need to sometimes just use their imaginations you know, you don't need to look for how to do something. Just try and use your brain to try and come up with your own idea as to how it's going to happen. You don't need to look online and find, there's there's no wrong or right way. And that's the biggest thing ever is most of the sounds that I love are, are mistakes. Well, you know, things that have happened through some happy accident. And, you know, happy accidents are good things. 
So your message is for people to just grab the dildo and put it in things? Yeah, 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 that's exactly it, yeah. <laughs> you had that queued up. Do, 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 do things that with, the, with the EQ that you shouldn't do, you know, just just torture the plugins. Use your mics horribly, you know, put them in places where they're in danger because that's why you bought the damn microphone, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know, there's people that are so precious. I mean, I don't know how many Rycoats I've burnt. It's, it's getting a bit silly, actually. I've got to buy a new one for my ships actually at the moment because I melted it a few days ago. But, you know, <laughs> I guess it's, um, I, th I think people are too safe sometimes with some things they do. And I just think people need to uh, not always search the internet for how you do something. Try and use your brain would be a good thing. And a lot of the younger people that are sort of, uh, you know, coming up in the ranks here, they tend to look on the internet first. And I think there are other ways of doing it. <laughs> yeah, it's definitely it's definitely a reflex because, you know, just about the entirety of human intellect is available out there. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's hard to make yourself stop looking for that externally and then look internally for it, right? No, totally. Um, one of the biggest things that I'm taking away from this whole conversation is just how much recording of stuff that you're doing. I mean, we all do a lot of recording of stuff, mm. but you're you're recording quantities on a different level than I am. Yeah. It, it illustrates to me how much understanding technique means one thing, but putting just the effort and the work into actually going out there and executing is really what separates you know, the men from the boys on a lot of this. Not to use a term like that but whatever yeah no, but it's also about proximity of where you live i mean the thing is like when i went to vancouver i couldn't just record the things that i normally did because there was no place to record you know like i, I couldn't find the quiet and so uh, partly I, i'm very fortunate that we live in this country where at night time at my house just up at the hill here i cannot hear a thing i mean if the wind's blowing and there's 150k wind i can hear the hell out of that <laughs> but Generally speaking, it's just completely silent, and I can see the city in the distance. So I'm very fortunate that, A, I can just go out of the city for five, ten minutes, and I'm in the middle of a forest, and there's no noise. So that in itself, is it makes it easier for me, I guess. And so, um, Yeah, that's a six-hour drive for me. Yeah, I know. I know, exactly. And like, also, I've got friends in the UK that have always been asking for sounds. They're like, why don't you go and record the sounds yourself? It's actually because they can't. There is no place to do it. You've got to go into a Foley room. So um, I think proximity has a lot to do with that whole thing. And we, we're little piggies like that. We're so used to being able to record sounds we do all the time. But like, you know, even the smaller New Zealand films that we work on, I mean, we record huge palettes for them. There might be a nine-week job, but you end up with a 50, 60 gigabyte and effects library at the end of it just from your raw recordings that you've made. And it's just giving the film a voice. You're trying to find a voice for the film, and I think that does come out of the recording. I mean, they're your building blocks. It's your, your hammers and your chisels, and you need those tools to build the house, you know, to build the film. That's great. Yeah. I really loved talking to you. I love – I'm, like, totally inspired to – I'm going to go home and, like, record my way home now. <laughs> um, I guess the one thing about recording your own sounds is just you don't need expensive equipment to do it, and it's better to record than not. I mean, to be honest – most of the crew here have like the little Sony M10. Yep. And, you know, just it's a great little recorder, you know, or a Zoom. There's a, there's a few of them around as well. And just record the world that you're in because, you know, it's there to be had. And and uh, there's so many times I've fallen back to those recordings and used them in key moments in films because they are great. You know, like I've never had a recorder that the batteries last so long too. I can't believe it. Yeah. Oh, it's an amazing little recorder. It's, it's incredible. Great. Like it's really great. And it doesn't need a windscreen. 
It doesn't. Well, I did buy one for mine, but it, it's really cool. You know, I bought one for my son and, uh, you know, he's out recording the world too, which is really cool. And it's affordable for people. And um, when I started doing films, I mean, I had an Audio Media 3 card, which, you know, is the equivalent to an inbox, I guess. And I was doing short films and some of my television and even some of the first feature films just out of that system, which, you know, it sounds, sounds awful, but, you know, with new Pro Tools and all the new plugins that are available to people, you know, you can work on films with those smaller, cheaper systems. You don't have to have big, expensive systems. You know, something that I've done in the past is if I see an opportunity, I'll send a recorder out with somebody, yeah. even if they don't know what the hell it is, right? Totally. Like, my mom bought an Airstream and went and toured the country, and I said, Mom, here's a recorder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you hear something cool, just roll on it and then hand it to me when you get back from your trip. And I got all this beautiful, like, rain, yeah. you know, just out in the middle of the nowhere. And then I had a buddy that went down to Mexico, you know, down into the jungles down there. Yeah. And he's a he's a cook, you know? Yeah, but yeah, I handed him my my M10, and he went down with it, and he came back with you know eight gigs of stuff, and it was great. Oh, totally. I have a horror story along those lines. Yeah. Oh yeah. My wife went to India for a month, and I sent oh. her with an M10. Yeah. And she was sending me emails the whole trip. Oh, I got this, and we were in this jungle with monkeys, and we recorded this, and then it got stolen on the second last day she was oh. there. It's all oh, gone. Oh no. Yeah. No, I, no. <laughs> It, All those monkeys. It, it almost makes me want to cry <laughs> just talking about it right now. I'm uh, <laughs> so looking forward to it. Oh, we've all had that. I recorded the heck out of Vancouver when I was there. We are in this great hotel where we were about eight stories up. And I didn't have many sort of, uh, you know, North American sort of Canada recordings. And, and uh, it was sirens and punch-ups in the streets and bums and, you know, the whole thing. It was <laughs> every night and accidentally we lost this drive. It was just all these city recordings that I lost, and it was, oh man, I was just devastated. One of the first sounds that I remember hearing and thinking, oh my God, that is so damn great, would have been the, the jet on back in USSR with the Beatles. Mm-hmm. And it's just this jet plane at the beginning of the song. And I remember hearing that in the record and thinking, oh, my God, that's so cool that they've got this jet in the song, you know. And I must have been five, six years old. And I think that was kind of like uh, one of the first things that made me sort of think about sound effects, you know, because we didn't have a television at the time. And then, like, The Laughing Gnome, it was David Bowie, and, and it was sort of like uh, he was pitched up higher or something. And I was like, oh, my gosh, it was sort of the same year. And then that same year I got hit by a car. And so uh, I was hit by this taxi on this bridge, flew in the middle of nowhere, and I was lying on the ground, and I couldn't see anything, but I could hear this entire accident scene. And so this woman was crying over me, and I remember hearing her voice. This ambulance arrived. I was shoved into the middle of it. I heard the car going around me. I was put on this operating table. I heard scissors cutting off my clothes. Uh, It was this incredible thing, and that was one of my first real sound experiences and it's sort of like it's interesting through your life though sort of drawing on these old experiences to try and sort of build scapes for you know like I've actually had accident scenes in a film where I drew on that source of what I remember from my childhood to try and give me that feeling when I was recording cannons for Pirates of the Caribbean I put on the headphones instead of the earmuffs and I said fire 
and they fired and I couldn't hear for about two minutes. And <laughs> it just went, and all I could hear was, you know, tinnitus. And it was just this ringing. And then a film came along where that happened. And this person, a gunshot went off and I had to go to that place and I called on that, you know. So I think part of the sound design fun for me is just the recall of your life, is finding these moments in your life where you pull on that resource of something that's happened to you and you can relive it in a way, you know. That's a beautiful thing about what we do. I, I, I do love that part. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to us today. This has been amazing. I've learned a lot and I've laughed a lot too, which is an excellent uh, addition. I just want to say one other thing, and this, sure. this, this is for people that are sort of getting into it. I mean, I think it's really important for people to sort of embrace the idea of really keeping their library tight, like, you know, the naming conventions, uh, keeping them in really good folders, um, trying to get something that you can write metadata so you can search. I mean, the thing is, like, whether you're starting out, you know, you've just left high school and you're trying to build your palette, build your library, the library is everything. And so I would say just write as soon as you can, try and adopt a really stringent naming structure. So, like, ambience. So let's say you record a city. It might be AMB, A-M-B, city, active, cars, blah, blah, blah. You know, like, and then... I think the thing is, like, you just try and really figure out yourself a naming structure that you're going to sort of see through. Things might change later on. You can rename things later. But it's a really good practice to try and build your palette that way. Uh, and actually, it served me pretty well once I started adopting it. And and it's very easy to move around my library now, which is, is great, apart from the 200 debt tapes I haven't loaded <laughs> but, uh, from years ago. <laughs> Yeah, that's definitely one of the things when you're working in teams, it's so key to be able to find the sounds once you've added them to a library. Once a library gets to any size at all, your metadata is the only way you'll find anything. Totally. Absolutely. But you know, it starts early and, and you'd be surprised, like you will call on those sounds that you recorded early later on. I mean, you know, I've been doing this for um, on 25, 24 years now, and, and I still use sounds that I recorded in the first years I started. Because they're right. They're the right sound for the thing that you're looking for. And I remember the moment. The only thing I would add to that is back up your drive as well. Oh, boy. Back up, back up, back up. Yeah. Try and have some sort of RAID set up. I guess nowadays you have the the benefit of having a RAID technology. So do that. If you've got a significant library, I mean, even if if it's not, it's something special, keep something off site. Because people have had buildings burned down or burgled and they take everything. And then you are ruined. We had some people here that recently, they all of their drives were taken, their computers, all their musical gear, vintage gear. But the thing that was most precious were their sort of scratch pads. You know, they'd written all this music and it's gone. So, you know. Um, that exact situation happened to me about five years ago. My studio was broken into and everything was gone. But uh, yeah. I had backups of my sound effects library and my work drive. And the next day I was able to go to a friend's studio and he let me use his back room for a little while. And within a week or two, I was back up and running and it was, it was real stressful, but it all worked out. Yeah, I'm, I'm touching some wood right now. Just, you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 <laughs> anyway, I don't think anyone's going to break in here in a hurry. But uh, anyway, you guys, hey, it's been great talking and uh, pleasure, to, pleasure to help out. And um, I, I had listened through you guys' site and you got some really cool stuff there. Thank you very much. Thanks, Dave. Really yeah. appreciate it, man. Yeah, keep it up. Yeah, We'll catch up in a few years, eh? Let's do it. Great. Look forward to it. Choice. Okay, take care. All right, we'll see you. 
You too. Bye. Thanks for listening to Tone Benders. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Benders on Twitter or find Tone Benders Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at ToneBendersPodcast.com. I just know the guys are going to listen to this and think, geez, Dave, you're a wanker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. staying yeah. in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Anyway.